Thanks for joining the Capital Church podcast channel. For more resources and to learn more about Capital Church, please visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at capitalchurch.co. Yeah, NFL football starts what? In about four weeks, four and a half weeks. So I'm excited for the fall. Uh, my voice, I lost my voice last service. I promise I haven't been smoking. I just, I lost my voice in first service. And so um, if we can maybe turn up the mic. Can you guys hear me right now? We'll, we'll see. I got a little feisty at first service. So we'll see uh, what happens this service. But we've been in our Social Kingdom series. And uh, how many of you been here over the last maybe couple months? We've talked about what it, what it means to belong. We talked about uh, being a family. We talked about the church. A couple weeks ago, we talked about uh, being a member of the body of Christ. This week, I'm just going to talk about three things before we get into our passage here this morning. The first one that I kind of want to explore is, and I'll probably take about maybe 50 minutes to an hour to talk about this. No? Um, but I, I want to do my best to uh, address the issue of why do we struggle with commitment? In other words, why are we commitment phobes? Last week, if you were here, we talked about being um, a people of promise over preference, right? And our kind of, our, our, I will say, like our definition of commitment and being a person of promise is being stuck with what you're stuck with, okay? So we're kind of work from that definition. So why is it that we struggle with, with commitment and being stuck with what we're stuck with? So that's, I'm going to do my best to kind of explore that. Two, everyone say two. Two, I'm going uh, to try to uh, maybe give you, and this is an oversimplification, but I do want to talk to you about what I think the number one reason was for the source of the early church's radical commitment to being the people of God. And so uh, I'm, there are a lot of different things we could talk about this morning, but I'm going to talk about what I think is the number one reason why the church, uh, even though they were messed up, the reason why they were committed to building for the kingdom of God. And then the last thing, I'm going to give you just a few thoughts that I'll, I'll probably pray us through for this week on how we can be people of commitment uh, this week, right? Or maybe even this month. So really quick, Acts chapter 2. Uh, we're going to begin in verse 42. And uh, this is Dr. Luke, right? And he's writing, he's talking about, he's giving us like the DNA of the early church, and uh, he writes, and they devoted themselves, and we'll say devote. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all, could you say all? All who believed were together and had all things in common. Verse, is this verse 45? Yeah. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all. There's this kind of astonishing expression of generosity as any had need. Then we come to verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together. Could you say together? So they're doing life together. And breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And everyone said amen. Could you bow your heads, close your eyes as we pray. Father, I thank you for uh, your grace this morning. Help my voice. 
We thank you that you are here. We thank you for your promise in Matthew 18 and throughout the entire New Testament that where two or three are gathered, you are there in the midst. So we thank you, Jesus. You are the most important. And we thank you that as, as I speak, that you would be lifted up and that our lives would be transformed as we open up our hearts to what you want to say today, Holy Spirit. We love you. And everyone said, amen. How many of you love your moms? Yeah, we love our moms, right? I love our moms. It's funny. Uh, I come down uh, early in the morning to um, uh, be with my boys. And uh, Kingsley in particular, everyone say Kingsley. Kingsley, and this is just a side note, just want to let you know, uh, he never smiles at me in the morning, but every time he sees Kelly, my wife, his face just lights up, right? Uh, we love our moms. I love my mom. How, I don't think Pastor Connie is here this morning, but my mom, Pastor Connie, is an extraordinary human being. Can I get an a, a amen to that? Love her so much. Um, she was the best mom in the world. It's funny, my aunt told me, this would have been about five years ago, and you've heard, some of you have heard me say this. She said, over 30 years, I was the worst kid that she'd ever seen. So it was a weird kind of like this weird in, incongruous relationship that I had with a mom because she was like the best mom in the world. So she did pretty much everything right except for one thing. She was like um, a health foodie. This is we were living in Portland uh, when I was younger. And uh, so she was really into like the health food scene. So she was, a, she was a health foodie before there were like health foodies. And again, this is late 70s, early 80s. And so what she would do, this was kind of like our, our practice in, in a week, given week, is she would take us to the health food store. Nah, you're not supposed to do that, right? Um, my wife, she, she used to be a vague, vegan for a couple years. She got saved, and now she eats meat. Anyways, <laughs> I tell that joke at least once a month. And, oh, you guys always laugh better, right? One day I'll, I'll stop using vegan jokes, but I don't care. Um, but we, we would go to the store, and it, it, this is just my personal experience as a kid. We would walk in, and if you've ever been in a health food store, I'm sure we, you have. Right? We have Boise Co-op. We love it, Whole Foods, all that kind of stuff. You walk in, in these health food stores, though, in Portland, and everybody smelt like vitamins. <laughs> right? Do you know that smell? It makes you want to, like, you know? And so we would do that, like, that was like a rhythm, like, going to the health food store. And my mom, she just made us eat, like, she was a lentil person. Do we have any lentil people? Lentils are just, how, come on, how many people love lentils? Okay, a few of you. I have, that, that's like, that's about a third of you. Wow, what is wrong with you people, right? Um, but my mom loved lentils, and she would force lentils on us, and Brussels sprouts. Anyone like Brussels sprouts? <laughs> this is the wrong church. Well, that, almost all of you raised your hand for Brussels sprouts. Well, I don't know. I don't know if it was just a me thing. I just, I did not like Brussels sprouts. My mom would boil them. I mean, just straight Brussels sprouts. No sauce, no, no, like, no, no seasoning, just straight up Brussels sprouts. We had to eat them with lentils, and we would have to go to the vitamin, like, food shop where all the angry vegans judged you, okay? Um, but we love vegans. 
But uh, one of the things my mom would do, um, uh, she would obviously feed us, force feed me in particular, lentils and vitamins and um, Brussels sprouts. But she also gave me faux chocolate. You know what the faux chocolate was? Carob. How many of you like carob? How many of you know what it is, right? Some of you know what it is. It's absolutely disgusting, right? Uh, so my mom, uh, she would have to, f- she tried to incentivize us with carob. It never, never worked. And uh, I remember just being a stubborn, stubborn kid and being at the table and refusing to eat. And my mom, and she, and my mom, she was such a good mom. She would say, hey, I'll give you something good. Just eat your food. And, and uh, in my mind, you know, look, looking back in reflection, it felt like hours um, at, at a table in one setting, refusing food. Probably was like five or ten minutes or whatever. But um, I was just a kid, and maybe some of you parents, you have kids like this. You just eating vegetables feels like like when your parents told you to eat vegetables. It feels like they were saying, "I want you now to go and die." Right. So that, that I was that kind of person. Maybe some of you are kind of like that. It's funny. God has a sense of humor because my son Kingsley is like this as well. My wife, um, I think this last week, gave him some solids, and uh, he refused it. Can I show you a little video of my son Kingsley? All right, you have no choice. I'm going to do it anyway. So let's put this video up. This is Kingsley. <laughs> Come on. (laughs) He could do that for hours right there. Yes, isn't he adorable? Um, That was, you can go ahead and turn that off now. Okay, all right. Um, So, man, uh, that was me. I mean, I just wasn't like a guy who ate uh, my vegetables. My son's the same way. So you're asking the question, okay, Chris, where, where are you going with all of this? Well, it's funny, I think, when we mention commitment, we talk about like rhetoric commitment. We want you to commit, right, to building for the kingdom of God or to the church. I, to be honest, I think a lot of us feel like um, it's like me saying, I want you to eat your vegetables. It's like eating carob or it's like doing something that you, you know you have to do, but you don't want to do it. I think it kind of shapes our cultural appetite, right, um, in terms of our relationship with um, commitment talk or commitment. In fact, Erin Lane says this in her Lessons in Belonging. This is her book from a church-going commitment phobe. This is what she says. The word commitment is about as attractive to me as the word submission or accountability. Right? Maybe for some of our women in here, it's like your husband saying, hey, go make me something in the kitchen. Right? And if you're a husband, you should never say that. Can I get an amen from all the women? Right, submission, right, or accountability. Commit, we are not people of commitment. Let's just, let's just get it out. Like, let's just, let's just be honest with who we are as Americans. In fact, and I've, I've quoted Robert Putman a lot. Uh, this is a 20-year study, actually a longer study, but this is about 20 years ago. And this is what he said about our nation. He said, our nation is filled with believers but not belongers. We no longer know, we know how to believe, I guess, on one level, But in general, uh, we live in a country that no longer knows how to belong or even join up with any um, sense of community. Uh, And I've talked about this often, but we have the average Christian switches churches now every 18 months. Now, let me just say this really quick. I'm not against people leaving churches. Like, if God is saying to you, 
and you do it the right way, that you need to go to a different church and you really plant yourself, we think that's great. Can we get an amen to that? So this is not about, oh, we can't go to different churches or whatever. No, this is, I'm not indicting you if you, you, you've been to different churches, but you've planted yourself. What I'm coming up against is this kind of, this cultural, like, we're going to switch churches if it doesn't meet our needs every 18 months. We now have a thing called church surfing, right? What is that? Well, I had a conversation with a girl um, a couple years ago, and she said, hey, Chris, I love your services on Sunday morning, and I love the preaching, I love the worship, I love the community, but in the afternoons I go to another church, and I love kind of some of their emphasis, right? They're a little bit more like super Pentecostal, and I need some of that, and then at night I go to a different service because I, I need a little bit more liturgy, and I really just love that. My response to her was, I mean, that's great, and there's nothing wrong if you do that every now and then, but man, if that's your way of, of life, it's that, if that's your relationship with the church, you can't, you can't belong. And if you don't belong to a community, it's impossible for you to really love. Because the Bible measures us. You can find this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You can find this in Mark chapter 6. I can give you just a plethora of scripture. But we are not measured by what we know, people. We're not measured by God by how much information that we glut in a single Sunday service. We are measured by how we love. We are measured by how we give our lives away. We are measured by how we serve, right? And so it's impossible for you to go to church service at the church service. You're like, I need a Pentecostal, I was going to say tickle, but that's weird. Okay, a Pentecostal quiver in my liver, and then I need an Episcopalian, like just a high liturgical environment. Then I need to get some scholarship from Capitol and some prayer from them and whatever. You, you, can't, you can't live that way. In fact, you find, it, I've been in ministry now for 22, 23 years, and people like at the beginning of the year, struggle with um, following through with commitments. This is not just a church thing. This is just a cultural thing. When it comes to reading our Bible, we start strong in January, and then in February, we're like, you know, what happened? Um, we don't want to get involved in small groups because that's where all the weird people are, right? Or we just have all these different perceptions about small groups or going to events and all these different thing, things. We are, just to be honest, we are commitment-phobic. So the question is, why? Why do we struggle so much with commitment? Number one, because we're Americans and we want our freedom. We've talked about this extensively, but we want our freedom. We want unlimited choice. We want life to be like the Cheesecake Factory, right? We have unlimited cheesecake. You got birthday cheesecake. You have vanilla cheesecake, you got strawberry cheesecake, you got ketchup on cheesecake if you want it, right? They actually don't have it, but you can actually, do. anyways, um, you got all kinds of chicken, lemon chicken, you got teriyaki chicken, you got baked chicken, you got, you got all different types of chicken. This is how we want as Americans our life to be, or at least this is our definition of what freedom is. Freedom is the absence of restriction. And when it comes to commitment, what does that insinuate? That insinuates group conformity. It insinuates, okay, I'm restricting myself to a community, and I don't even know if I like them, right? Or um, in some cases, if you're more of an intellectual type of person, group conformity in our age of, in our secular age, um, means or intimates uh, oppression or conformity to a group. And here's the thing. Our definition of 
of freedom is kind of this unlimited buffet of metaphysical choice, right? That's how Americans think. And here's the interesting paradox of American freedom defined as unlimited choice. It leads, this freedom, leads not to more freedom, it leads to a loss of freedom. Susie Salk states that if we decide to live by this kind of freedom, if we decide to live by our preferences, she says this, we will choose whatever we want in the moment based on whatever we feel like. Okay, so, 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 so Chris, what is the problem with that? Well, the problem is that um, our lives, if we live by preference and unlimited choice as freedom, become defined or governed by our feelings and preferences. And I don't know about your moods and feelings, but I know something about my moods and feelings. They change all the time. There are some days the sun's out, and I'm like, the guns are coming out, right? And I feel amazing, right? A bad joke? All right. Other days, I come on, am I the only person that has feelings? Right? Some days, I'm just like, I'm, I'm like this. And Susie Soak says, if you want to live by that kind of freedom and preference, you can't have a sense of stability, and you will actually, in the end, lose your freedom. This is her definition of freedom. It's no matter what happens in your life, I will be the person who God has called me to be no matter how I feel. In other words, she's basically riffing off of, and again, I can't give you all the scripture here, but the, the Bible's ultimate definition of freedom, and it's this. I will be who God says I am no matter what. So when it comes to freedom, we can chain ourselves either to our moods and our feelings, or we can chain ourselves to God's word and what he says over us and his purpose, his promise, his word over our lives. You choose, right? I love 500 years ago, Martin Luther, after nailing the 95 Thesis on the door, and when he was in, on trial, this is what he said. I love it. He goes, here I stand. I can do nothing else. There is so much freedom in that. There's so much freedom when you can say, I am going to love even though no one in my life is loving me back. Or I'm going to live by faith even though my body is failing me. There is freedom when you can join yourself or chain yourself to God's word, not to your moods and not to your feelings. C.S. Lewis said this, unless you teach your moods where to get off, you can nev never either be a good Christian or an atheist, but just a creature dithering to and fro, living by the weather and the state of your digestion. So what is freedom? Well, we've defined freedom as the absence of restraint or boundaries. You find this in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. This goes all the way back to the primal sin that we find in Genesis 2, or excuse me, chapter 3. Hasatan, the serpent, comes and tempts Adam and Eve. And what's the temptation? Structured around, it's structured around unlimited freedom. You can be like God. And that is a source of our cosmic wreckage. Tim Keller writes, freedom is not so much the absence of restrictions as it is about finding the right ones. 
For example, if you don't know this, I used to be an athlete. I'm no longer an athlete. But one thing I understood as an athlete, that if you want freedom when you're competing, when you are playing, it's quarter one. If you're in ice hockey, you play ice hockey. It's what, period one, whatever your sport is. If you want to play at a high level, your ability to play with freedom or with what some scholars call flow isn't going to happen spontaneously. It happens when you bind yourself to a set of practices over year after year after year, right? This applies to all of life, right? We know this. Like if you have a dad bod right now and you want to get into shape, what do you have to do? You got you to gotta get back into the gym, right? This applies to CrossFit. applies to playing the piano. It applies to river dancing, if that's your thing. I'm trying to wake you guys up, whatever. So here's the thing. What is freedom? Lewis Meads writes this. When someone, he's riffing off our biblical understanding of freedom. When someone makes a promise or a commitment, they stake a claim on freedom. The promise or commitment is the power. Everyone say power. It is the power to act freely in order to bring dependability into the unpredictable future. So when my beautiful wife and I were married almost 13 years ago, 13, right, babe? Okay. I almost got that wrong last week. We were in Seattle, and if you've been in a wedding, you know how it goes, right? We all have been in a wedding. We have vows, and in the vows, I remember as a young man listening to people give their vows, and they would kind of end like on something like this, to death do his part. I used to think that was kind of macabre, kind of dark or whatever, but I've come to realize that that's actually a sacred stake on freedom. When my wife and I were looking at each other, right, she just thought I, I looked, uh, you know, amazing. She couldn't get her hands off of me, and I was like, whoa, babe, right? She just, I was good looking back then. Anyways, but my wife keeps on getting more gorgeous than ever. I love her. And we, I remember we were looking, staring at each other in our eyes, and we were vowing back and forth to death do us part. What were we doing? We were staking a claim on our freedom. We were saying, she was saying, Chris, if you get a dad bod or not, I am still vowing to you that come rain, hell, high water, 17 kids and counting, whatever, I am going to be committed to you, right? And I said the exact same thing. Even if we go crazy and we lose our minds and all the future, because we we, at that time we didn't know what the future is all about. We didn't know we were going to have three sets of twins. I got to be honest with you. If I would have known that, I might have been, I, I don't know what I would have said. But we made promises to each other. We committed each other. And it's in the act of commitment that we experience power and grace, authority, and true freedom. That's what happens when you make a commitment. So why do we struggle with commitment? Well, we're Americans, number one. Number two, we want things easy. Zygmunt. Uh, Bowman said this. He's a, I think he's a Danish sociologist. He said, we have turned the love experience into a commodity. So we want no waiting. We want no drama, right? We want no sweat. We want no effort. We want the fast track. We want instant satisfaction. We just want stinking results in our life. In fact, John Tyson said this. I don't mean to be graphic, so please forgive me. 
um, and I don't want to even put this into your mind, but if you want to, as an app, there's an app, right? In 30 minutes, you can go on that, and you can have sex with a stranger. John Tyson says we can cut through the most intimate act between two humans and make it drama-less. We have treated relationships, our life, sex, as a commodity, as just some, it's just a thing. Sorry, my voice is cracking, right? <laughs> it's, it's, we've desacralized not only our commitments, but in desacralizing our commitments, we've desacralized our relationships, our bonding to each other, our marriages, even um, sex itself. So we want easy, right? For some of us, number three, this could hit home even more so, is that we, we suffer from what I'll call low-grade disillusionment. Or maybe, um, for some of you, it's more large-scale. Maybe it's, it's big disillusionment, right? We live in a divorce culture where, and this is a little bit old, and I don't know how true this is now, but one in two American marriages will end in divorce. I mean, on a meta level, we just know this. It's you, if you feel it when you're on the streets and you go to the grocery store, we live in an age of broken promises. Now, I know there's nothing new under the sun, but it just it feels like you can't trust people, right? Right. We live in a, in a culture that um, many people believe is filled with lies, right? And I believe to, to an extent that is true. Uh, we're experiencing or we're in the throes of the wreckage of the American family. We have public scandals. If you're old enough, right, you have Nixon, you had Watergate, you have Vietnam, the Democrats and their talking point. Again, I'm not making any political statement here. Their issue was the pharmaceutical companies. They're addicted to greed, right? We all, in some collective sense, believe that um, we can't trust public institutions. In fact, we live in a culture where... Um, we are led to have a profound mistrust in public officials. And in some way, and this is just a side note, I believe this is why we're wedded to the proliferation of conspiracy theories. Like, did we actually land on the moon, right? Is the earth flat? Just so you know, we did land on the moon. Can I get an amen to that? You would be shocked at the people in this room that doesn't believe that. And I'm speaking to you. Anyways, let's move on, right? Some of that, I know there's a lot of things going on with like conspiracy theories, but on one level, I think the proliferation of conspiracy theories is tied to our tragic mistrust of, of people. In fact, my personal experience, I remember I was in my 20s, I've been pastoring for about five years, and I had a come to Jesus moment with my dad and mom, who were the lead pastors at the time, and I was a youth pastor, and I was like, Mom, Dad, I don't know about this ministry stuff. I know I'm called to it, but um, I'm thinking about maybe quitting, making money, doing something else because, <laughs> yeah, making money. Um, I, I had a lot to learn, right? Um, and uh, may, maybe doing something else with my life. And um, thank God, he, he started speaking to me. But uh, looking back uh, in reflection on that moment, with the conversation that I had with my parents, I realized my issue wasn't, the source of my disillusionment wasn't the world. I knew the world was crazy. So the source of my disillusionment, disillusionment was with the people in the church. Now, I, hey, and this is going to hit home for some of us. I know maybe some of you have come from churches and you've just had really tragic experiences. And that we understand that. And we understand heartache. Lord, I understand being betrayed by a lot of people that I have looked up to 
in the church. I've heard, like, I've heard it from many people in counseling sessions that they're like, well, the people in the church are fake and hypocritical and all that. I, I understand that, right? I get that people are disillusioned with life, with commitment, with community. The good news is I think there's an answer to that disillusionment. But quickly, number four, another reason why we, we um, struggle with commitment is because of self-protection. I'll call this anti-vulnerability. What is vulnerability? It comes from the Latin word meaning to uh, be capable of being wounded. Um, Self-protection is a realistic approach to community, right? In other words, um, you don't want people to know your mess, and you don't want to know other people's messes. So you maintain a just a nice enough distance. So you, you show up on Sunday right? We do our worship thing. We listen to a word. We hang out in the lobby. We do whatever. And then we go through our week, largely disconnected from church, largely disconnected from Jesus, his grace, his power, his kingdom. And then we come back and we can do it all over again on a Sunday. A lot of that is shaped by our unwillingness to be vulnerable with each other. Like what what are they going to, like some of you are like, what are they going to think when they realize that I cuss every now and then? What are the pastors? Are they going to, like, like, cast me out, right? What, are they, what if they come to the realization that I'm a Washington Redskins fan? Yeah, we will excommunicate you. But the rest of the people, right, what are they going to do, right? Like, what, I, I watch the Kardashians too much, or my political beliefs are, like, they're just, they're, you know, whatever. Um, they don't fit maybe with this particular church. Many of us, uh, we live within this kind of self-protection. And so what happens is we don't get too involved. Uh, number, number five, I think, when it comes, maybe for uh, quite a few of us, when it comes to committing, maybe that's small groups, maybe that's doing our life together, uh, going to event, whatever. I think some of us fail to commit because we're just exhausted. I think there's two levels to this. I think some of us, yeah, we have families, we have marriages, we have work, we have stuff that we're all involved in, and that's great, but we're just tired, right? And because we don't prioritize at times, because we're just exhausted, and there's no judgment here, the kingdom of God over certain things, we just, we kind of give in to our exhaustion. And that's fine, and that's okay. I'm experiencing that. I'm tired. I don't even know where I'm at right now. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> I was hoping you would laugh a little bit more. But the second thing that when it comes to, there's another kind of exhaustion. I'm going to call it pathological exhaustion. And hear me, hear me, hear me. This is the acid of our modern contemporary life that erodes our commitments. It's that we have an addiction to success. We have an addiction to work. We have an addiction to making money. We have an addiction to I have to find value outside of Jesus and belonging. And so we prioritize being successful over being a part of this wildly transformative community we call church. You still with me? That was actually for all the other people, the different churches. No one in here struggles with that. So we get exhausted because we're creating idols out of our life. And it renders us unable to do life 
together. Number six, this is something that maybe some of us deal with. It's called idealism. Like, we come into a church and we just assume that the, the Christian community should be absolutely perfect, right? They should share my political beliefs. There should be no weirdos, right? No one should come up to the front and raise their hand because that's weird. Or everybody should come up to the front and raise their hand because that's a, a sign that God's moving. Like, we all have subjective taste or subjective expectations when it comes to church. But we just kind of work from an, an idealistic assumption that Christian community should be perfect. In fact, there's um, scholars have this phrase. It's called motive attribution a um, um, symmetry, which means this. It's the belief that I am motivated by love, but everyone else is motivated by hate. I like to riff off of that and say there is such a thing as, in the last 22 years, I've seen it in a lot of people. There's what we call, what I'm going to call community attribution asymmetry. It's the belief that I'm generally doing really well, but everyone else in the community is actually not doing all that well. So why would I be a part of a messy community? It goes back all it goes all the way back to um, wanting no drama, no sweat, no effort. Like I got my life together. Why should I be a part of people that maybe I don't like or I don't want to belong to? Right. And so we just kind of work from a delusion that man everything is. Um, perfect in our own lives. What happens is we then start judging people. We start accusing people. We're like, hey, the preacher, he didn't give me enough scriptures this Sunday. Or, man, we needed more Hillsong. Or, man, why does that person, why does that person have that political belief? And why does that person have that political belief? And there's nothing wrong with having discourse over our politics. But God has not called us to compete or to judge or to accuse each other. Why do we do it? Well, we believe when we judge someone that we're working from a higher place of self-righteousness. And it is self-righteousness that erodes the fabric of our life together. But those aren't the biggest issues. The biggest issue that I think People really struggle with when it comes to commitment. It's this last one, and then I'm going to share just a few thoughts, and then I'll pray for you. Is number seven. I think when it comes to our withering commitments, if that's an issue for us today, is that we fundamentally do not believe the Christian story is big enough. We don't believe it's large enough or worthy of our undying commitment. Part of it is that we've reduced the good news, right, the gospel that we find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, as Jesus proclaimed it, we've reduced it to, like, somehow God just, like, blessing me. The gospel, in, in many cases, it's more implicit has been reduced to, okay, I'm going to come to church and the preacher man is going to teach me how to be successful. He's going to give me seven tips like Vogue magazine, right, or GQ. Give me seven tips on how I can become the best version of myself, right? Or, or the pastor should, should give me like 18 tips on how to 
like, manipulate my family to do what I want them to do or whatever, right? Now, there's nothing wrong with um, good advice, right? I think that's good. But the good news is not good advice at all. In fact, we've, 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 we've turned this large-scale Christian story into, like, a self-help thing. Like, I don't even know what it is. We've watered it down. Uh, we've attenuated it. We've made it thin. We've made it powerless. And so our gospel, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, does not come in power or in the Holy Spirit or full assurance. It comes as a self-help exercise. And I've had preacher friends tell me, Chris, you can't preach about this stuff because people won't come back to your church. But I just, I got to tell you, man, I got to preach the truth whether you come back or not. Here's the thing. The crucial thing for building a New Testament church is not, and this, is what I, this is what I'm not saying here this morning, is, okay, as your lead pastor, I want you to become more committed. I'm not going to give you the judgy eyes, right? I'm not going to say, gosh darn it, people, you got to get your act together, right? That's not, that's not how you form a community around belonging and commitment. What do you do? You first have to challenge our understanding of what the Christian story is all about. And I think if we want to be a people of commitment and promise, being people that are stuck with what we're stuck with, and entering into the freedom that only Jesus can give us, we need a renaissance or a fresh understanding of what Christianity is all about. So we can't understand as we get to Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, we can't understand the framework around that if we first don't understand uh, Acts 1 and the beginning of Acts chapter 2. So what is the good news? The good news is not self-help. The good news is not good advice. It's not, oh, this is how God will just simply forgive you and then send you off to heaven. And then, but in the meantime, God will teach you how to be a nice person, pay your taxes, take care of your pets, or whatever. Be just a nice neighbor. That is not ultimately what the Christian story is all about. What we find in Acts chapter 1 and this forms the good news in the gospel, is that Jesus ascended first into heaven. Now many of us think that, because we have wrong views of heaven and earth, when you go to scripture and you look at the cosmos or cosmogony that you find in the biblical text, you will find that heaven and earth are not radically detached. That they overlap in invisible ways, they, they, they're, they're radically dependent upon each other. In fact, they're tangentially related in ways we can't presently be aware of right now. So when Jesus goes into heaven, we usually think, because we're just modern Western thinkers, that that means that Jesus went to some place way, 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 trillions of miles away from us and has left us as orphans, Right? Like when we talk about the ascension, we think of like a primitive Iron Man, like blasting off and flying um, off and away from us. But that is not what heaven is like. Heaven and earth intimately overlap. In fact, when we gather together, you can find this in Ephesians chapter 2. I could go through scripture and make a case for this, but I can't do it right now. But when we gather together as the people of God, we are being built into a holy temple. 
And temples in the world of antiquity were the places where heaven and earth came together. So just so you know it, you might not think it, but this isn't just an earth construct service. This is a heaven colliding with earth service right now. Heaven is closer than you realize. Let me just say this, and I've talked about this so many times. Heaven is also not a place where you go and you eat disembodied food and you play disembodied harps, and it's a place of general staticness. It's a do-nothing place. In fact, what you find in the Old Testament, I could take you to Psalms, I could take you to early passages in Genesis, some in the Torah, that heaven is a control center. In fact, it is the place where God rules earth. So, when we see Jesus ascending into heaven, heaven is kind of like the White House. When the president wins the election, the president goes to the White House not to lay around. The president goes to the White House to get to work to run the country. So, when we see that Jesus ascended into heaven, what is Luke telling us? We find his death in 1 Corinthians 15 was all about saving us from our sins. We find that in his resurrection, his bodily resurrection, that new creation was launched. And then we find in Acts chapter 1 that Jesus ascends into heaven. What is that? That's an enthronement passage. What Luke is telling us is that now Jesus at this very moment in human history at 1223 August 4th, right? This beautiful sunny summer day. Jesus is running the entire creation. Through his love. He's in charge, come on, of our bodies and brains. He is over by his love, the Democrat Party, like the Republicans, like he's over laissez-faire economics. He is running world history, not through micromanaging it, but through his self-giving love. So, Jesus right now, and this is the good news, this, is, this ain't good advice, Tony Robbins can't give this to you. President Trump can't give this to you. The Democrats can't give this to you. Neoconservatives can't give this to you. But Jesus right now is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. He is not Lord one day. He's not President elect. He's not King wannabe. He is the King. And every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Revelation, if you're a, you're a scripture guy, which we are a scripture church, Revelation chapter 1 verse 5 says that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead and he's the ruler of all kings. It's amazing. So then we come to Acts chapter 2 and we have Pentecost. Are you still with me? Give me a couple more minutes. Pentecost arrives in a dramatic style as a gift. Pentecost is, is a sign that the new age of the spirit that we find in Ezekiel 37 and 47. And you look at the kaleidoscopic promises and vision that you find in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Z, um, Ezekiel, and Joel, and Zechariah have now dramatically been fulfilled in Jesus as he gives the spirit out in Acts chapter 2. This means that God is with his people. This means in 1 Corinthians 15, as I mentioned, that God has now forgiven the sins of his people. This means, you can find this in 1 um, Peter, 
chapter 1 and 2 and 1 John 1 and 2, that death is now overthrown, right? Death has been defeated through the death of Jesus, and Jesus' bodily came, come back from the dead. This means that new creation has, has been launched. New creation, what does that mean? That God will restore and heal and transform all things. Can I get an amen to that? Chris, give me some scripture. Give you Galatians chapter 6. Paul says it's not circumcision that matters. It is new creation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. 2 Peter, right, chapter 3. We are eagerly awaiting for the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. Revelation 21. Am I, am I too feisty? Revelation 21 and 22, we have the new garden city coming down, and there's this marriage of the Lamb, and new heavens and new earth comes together where God wipes away every tear. John 20, John 21, I could go on and on and on about the good news is about how God will make all things new. So this is better, would you agree, than good advice? Good advice is great, and we'll give you good advice. But we have good news, people. Our world is a radically different place. Death, the flesh, sin, the Satan no longer are in charge. Jesus is. This means that you can experience healing in your heart and in your body. This means that God will come and wipe away your bitterness, exhaust your lovelessness, and remove your depression from your life. God will fill the longings of your heart and give you righteousness, peace, and joy. And I will preach this, and if you don't like this kind of preaching, I told you, that's fine. You go to a different church, we totally love you, but this is the good news. And I will preach this until I have oxygen in my lungs. I lost my thought, but whatever that means, right? We won't be a church that will just preach good advice. We will preach the good news of Jesus. So it's this story that formed the radical commitment that we find in Acts chapter 2. It says this in verse 42, as we read earlier, that they were devoted and they continued in the apostles' doctrine, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, the prayers. What happened? That commitment, according to John Tyson, opens up the possibility to all wonder signs. I think there's a sequence here. I think when we devalue the story of Jesus, here's the thing, let me just say this really quick. How do you overcome little loves? You do it by having bigger loves. Like, I, I love to golf, right? The older I get, the more I love to golf. Um, and it's something I would like to do every, like, Friday and Saturday. But here's the thing. I have a growing family, and my love for them is greater than my love for golf. Now, I hope to golf every now and then. I'm not saying I can never golf. But I overcome my desire to golf on the weekend because I would rather be with my son Quincy throwing the football and him tackling me, maybe possibly hurting me. But, you know, I'd rather play, I'd rather shoot hoops with my son Wesley, right? And hanging with him and showing him proper shooting mechanics than just going off to some golf course and playing, you know, hanging with my home homeboys, whatever, right? The point is, is that big loves overwhelm little loves. I'll, I'll even make a bigger point. Bigger stories are more powerful than little stories. Some of us, you came in this morning, 
And you know what your story is? Your story is defined by your loneliness. No judgment here, but that's all you can think about. Or for some of you, it's your addiction. Or maybe some of you, it's sickness. Or maybe, and again, there's nothing wrong with that. But you're so overwhelmed by these little stories, you have forgotten the large scale story that even though circumstances are right, I get it, most of us circumstances aren't going our way, right? But that doesn't mean that Jesus is not in charge of all things. And when you live into that larger, bigger story that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, he is king over cancer, he is king over your relationships, he is king over your kids, he is king over viruses, come on somebody, he is king over the state of our nation. That is when you can give your heart away. But when you don't have this big kind of story, you can't give your heart away. So the sequence is big story, big Christian story, which forms the radical commitment of the early church, which leads to awe, wonder, and signs. And then we find in verse, uh, I believe, 46, day by day, they went from the temple to their homes. John Tyson said this, Christianity is not just a weekend church thing, it's a way of life. It's not just something that we do on Sunday. We come and we listen. We come and we worship. We hang out with some people, right? And then we do our own thing. No, following Jesus is a way of life. In fact, side note as I close here, the secular age is trying to get everything that we find in Acts chapter 2. All the justice, all the compassion, all the belonging and longing. They want that. They want the kingdom of Jesus. They just don't want the king. And here's the thing, some of us, we want all the kingdom stuff, we just don't want to come under the king and his story. I think it's part and parcel of why we maybe struggle, maybe, just a thought, with commitment. Let me end here really quick. Three things to consider as we go into our week based on all of this. Number one, is this Christian story bigger than your story? What's your story? What were you thinking about? What were you feeling this morning? You drove here to church. You woke up in the morning. What were you feeling before you got your coffee? Some of you woke up, you just had a lot of anxiety. Some of you, maybe you got in a fight with your spouse. It's kind of a cliche. It always happens on Sunday, right? You came to church, right? Maybe you're feeling lonely. Maybe you're feeling forlorn. Maybe you feel like, okay, I just got so much mess in my life, I can't break out of it. Is that your story? I, I would just ask that this week you would... You would evaluate. And then you would ask the Holy Spirit to come and take this, what we're talking about, and bring revelation to your heart. That God would give you the grace. Ask this. Holy Spirit, come and give me grace to live within this big story. How many believe that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords? How many see that? Help me. I, I feel like I need to say this really quick, and we got to get... get moving here. But some of you need to believe that Jesus is everything your heart longs for. Some of you don't believe that. And you're good people. And you love Jesus. But you still don't believe that Jesus is the only person who can satisfy the longing of your heart. 
Is that your story? Ask the Holy Spirit. Ask the Holy Spirit this week to expand your vision of who God is. Number two, ask the Holy Spirit to help you. Again, this is all about how how we could be more committed. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you identify the obstacles that keep you from committing. So let's evaluate right now as as we close. Is one of the reasons why it's hard for you to maybe get involved in a small group or really belong or maybe your relationship with um, our life together is more distant, is it because of maybe past hurt, it's rejection, maybe a church you went to and things just went crazy, maybe some of you are exhausted this morning, maybe some of you are, what we talked about, are pathologically busy, your God is success, it's not Jesus, the King of Kings, maybe you're a freedom person, right, maybe you just value your freedom and for you to commit to our life together, just kind of have this sense it's going to restrict your freedom. Maybe some of us, again, we, maybe we need to reconcile with somebody. Maybe there are some people that we don't like because of a relationship conflict. I want you to ask the Holy Spirit, what are the obstacles? We all have them. Can I get any man to that? What are the obstacles that keep us from really doing life together? And finally, if we want to be people that are committed to our commitments and stuck with what we're stuck with, I wish I could offer you certainty, but I can't. We have to, if, if we're willing to be committed, we have to be okay with risk. You have to take a risk, right? You need to try that small group that you don't want to try, right? Because you think they're all weirdos. Or you need, to, you need to show up on Sundays more consistently, even when you don't feel like it. Like you had the Garth Brooks concert, which was amazing, right, the night before. You're tired. Maybe you had too much pina colada. Anyways, the next morning you're like, ah, right? Maybe the risk for you is like in spite of what you're feeling. You show up on a Sunday morning, right? There's a lot of different things. Maybe you need to reconcile with the person. Maybe the Holy Spirit's been talking to you about inviting that family, but you don't know if they're crazy or weird, but you know it's the Holy Spirit, and you're making up excuses, and you need to invite them to lunch, right? You need to step out, right? Because risk, I, I can't offer you certainty when it comes to our community. None of us are perfect. Some of you have strange political beliefs, but we still love you, right? We, we all have our idiosyncrasies, right? We, some of us like connect, some of us don't. We have preferences, I get that. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But there will be a time, if you think our church is really good, you're like, ah, the pastor's just, you know, he's being tongue in cheek. No, there will be a time when you're like, this church needs help. Every church needs help, right? So that is why we have to if we're all about love and commitment, we have to be willing to risk. Why? As I close here, Hebrews chapter 12, 1 through 3 says, Jesus is our model of risk, vulnerability, and love. It says, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of the Father. Jesus, Jesus, everyone say Jesus. Jesus models love as risk. In fact, risk is built into love itself. For love makes being wounded possible. I can't make any guarantees, but Jesus is our model for how to live into community. 
Romans chapter 8 in the message says that Jesus took on our messy human condition, entered into its disordered chaos, and then put it to rights. We find throughout, replete throughout the New Testament, Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. He became vulnerable. He decided to enter our mess rather than run from it. We know this, and I've talked about this a lot. Early Christians did not run away from chaos. They entered it believing Jesus had redemptive plans for it. Love is risk. So I end with this quote from C.S. Lewis. To love it all, to be committed at all, to be a person of promise, you're going to have to be vulnerable. But to love anything and your heart will certainly be wrong and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable impenetrable, irredeemable. He goes, the alternative to tragedy, or at least the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell. God's called us to belong. God's called us to be committed. That is where you experience freedom. That is where you experience life. Could you bow your heads, close your eyes?